The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Ezra 1, 1 through 5, and 3, 8 through 4, 5. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord The God of the heavens has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a freewill offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had roused, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 8. In the second month of the second year, after they arrived at God's house in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, including the priests, the Levites, and all who had returned to Jerusalem from the captivity, began to build. They appointed the Levites, who were 20 years old or more, to supervise the work on the Lord's house. Jeshua, with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel, with his sons, and the sons of Judah and of Hinnadad with their sons and brothers. The Levites joined together to supervise those working on the house of God. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. And then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads, who had seen the first temple, wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the family heads and said to them, let us build with you, for we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of King Esarhaddon of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other heads of Israel's families answered them, You may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And then the people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. 
They also bribed officials to act against them to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we recognize that this is a, a supernatural gathering of people, um, miraculous even. You say in 1 Corinthians 3 that we are the temple. And this, what an incredible thing as we read Ezra and Lord, that your people fell into sin um, and you lovingly disciplined them and then you resurrected even a second temple, uh, as it were. And then when you send your son, he says that he's the true temple and that he's making a temple full of uh, living stones. And so this is a miracle group that we, um, we are the embodiment of your spirit. We are the temple. We're the people who say Jesus is Lord. Outside of these walls, outside of this, uh, really, this membership of believers, uh, it's not so. Uh, we know there's other churches, and we trust that, but this morning, um, we're the temple gathered to, to worship you, and we want to do that forever. So help us to right-size our priorities um, and to live in accordance with that. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn over to Haggai chapter 1. Um, have you ever been in a relationship, or a, a friendship maybe, uh, where some things took place between the two of you, uh, and because of those issues, you find yourself at odds or, or even um, drifting apart. And if someone were to ask you about the state of the relationship, your response would have to be, um, we're just really not on speaking terms right now. There's just some things between us. And the, until these things are dealt with, we're, we're not really on speaking terms. Um, maybe it wasn't a friendship, it was a family member. But nonetheless, a, a very similar thing. You find yourself saying, we're just not really on speaking terms right now. There's some things that have gone on between us that um, have driven a wedge and we really aren't on speaking terms. If it wasn't a family member, it wasn't a, a friendship, um, maybe it was your spouse. So uh, I know in our, in our church we never have skirmishes in our marriages. Um, but there, you know, there's some things that have happened, and uh, you're disagreeing on something, and what happens? Silence. And what does that silence say? We're not really on speaking terms for this moment. There's some things that have to be dealt with uh, before we're going to be able to move on and move forward. Until, in all of these examples, there typically is this moment, this blessed moment where the silence is broken and someone takes hold of their responsibility, um, their part in it, and words begin to pour out. Something begins to be said, um, and you're at that moment where not everything is fixed. It's certainly not fixed, but we're at least on our way, right? There, the tension's been broken. Um, we're agreeing, or at least one of is agreeing, we're going to deal with these issues and, and we're going to move on. Well, the people of God... At the point of Haggai's prophecy, that's really where they've been. Um, they've been 70 years in exile under the heavy discipline. It's fatherly discipline, but very heavy discipline of the Lord. They have sinned against the Lord, and there's been a generational um, response. I mean, this is happening upon generations. 
and it's due to the past generation of people, and they're exiled um, for 70 years. They're deported out of the land, um, and they're brought to Babylon, and they're just not on speaking terms. That's where they're at. There's just some things between God and, and the people, and that they're not on speaking terms. What we read, what CJ read out of Ezra, uh, Ezra is when Haggai, um, he shows up on the scene around this same time, but they've been brought back to the land um, by the Persians take over after Babylon, and they're sent back to the land, and there's finally this kind of moment where God begins to speak. He's the one who takes initiative, and he's going to speak um, and bring up some things, and it's a, it's a moment of, of tension because there have been things but he kind of says, hey, I've got some things to say, and we're going we're gonna to move forward. Um, we're family here, but, but there's some things that need to be dealt with. So Haggai chapter 1, that's where, where we're at, and that's what's happening, and, and God begins to say some things. He has some things to say. Haggai 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, fresh oil and water. The ground yields on man and animal and on all that your hand produced. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest, uh, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of the Lord of armies, their God, on the 24th day, the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. You may have noticed um, how many times the word of the Lord comes up, or God's speech. It's actually nine different times in just 15 verses. Uh, you see what I mean with the beginning of God kind of has some things that he wants to say and, and speech is about to pour forth, but it's over uh, their misplaced priorities and he has some things to say. 
I'll give you up front what's the big point, a big idea of of this whole chapter. It's this, how you expend your time, money, and energy betrays your inmost priorities. How you spend your time, money, and energy betrays your inmost priorities. That's what this whole chapter is about. Here's where we're going. Haggai really lends itself to seeing some observations, three different observations about God's relationship to his children, how he responds to them, Um, and these are the three. We'll we'll walk through them, but I'll I'll tell you on the front. The Lord confronts his children on account of sinful priorities. That's point one, or observation one. Two, the Lord often withholds earthly blessing from disobedient children. And then three, the Lord assures his obedient children. So there'll be some takeaways at the end, but that's basically where we're going. What C.J. read, um, and, and it actually wasn't in the text that he read, but what we know is there's about 50,000 people that come back after this exile, the deportation. So you're looking at a pretty slim-down Israel at this point. There's, they're cast of the four winds as well, but there's about 50,000 people. Not really large, not much larger than Liberty, really, uh, the city of Liberty. But there's about 50,000 people that come back. These Samaritans... When they get back into the city of Jerusalem, the Samaritans successfully slow down their progress when they begin to rebuild the temple. And there's about 16 years that go on where the temple just lays kind of half done, and then the people go about their business. They're back in the land, and they begin to kind of turn their eyes towards their own estate. And and God is addressing them because of their misplaced priorities and that's obvious like your your house seems to be doing fine but look at mine and which priority should be which so the whole story it's a very short book um, both in chapters but also it, it takes place over the course of less than a year so you're looking at a pretty quick sequence of uh, messages that are coming from Haggai to to the people the audience you, you can see in verse one is, is Zerubbabel and this is a he's a governor but that's really a Persian title what he is is the prince of of Israel at the time, and we'll see in chapter 2, and we'll spend more time with him, but um, he's a descendant of David, and so that's very important to know, but he's a, he's a descendant of David. Joshua, this is the high priest, so he's the lead preacher, if you will, uh, of, of the time, and then you have um, that it's pointed at this remnant, this 50,000 people that have come back, and they've misplaced their priorities. That, that's the group and the situation that we're addressing. So let's, let's deal with this first observation. It's um, verses 1 through 9, and it's this. The Lord will confront His children for sinful priorities. The Lord will confront His children for sinful priorities. Look at verse 2. He goes to these two leaders, and you can maybe you sensed it, but this is kind of a sarcastic uh, statement. These people say, right, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. He goes right at the heart of the issue. Their misplaced priorities. I mean, can you, you're missing it. And he just goes right at it. The Lord has no one to fear, right? And so he goes right at his people. Look at verse 5. Your misplaced priorities, what, what should you do with them? Think carefully about your ways. This would translate really like woodenly or literally, place upon your heart your ways. That's probably the most stunning statement in the whole chapter and in the book. He, he brings it up two times in chapter 2 as well. But 
if we get nothing else done today, the, the point of, of this chapter is consider your ways. That's what the Lord's message through Haggai 1 is. Where are your priorities? So he's saying, these 16 years, you have prioritized your own house, but you haven't prioritized mine. Look at verse 4. He refers to their houses as paneled houses, right? This really just means covered. So he's saying, your houses are finished. Mine lays in incompleteness. This is a, an argument for, well, it's pretty obvious where your priorities are. They're, they're, they're in your own glory and, and not in mine. I remain homeless, but you seem to be in a uh, quite nicely covered home. So you could say the people are, are characterized by a general disregard for the glory of, of the Lord at this point in time. They, they were slowed down. It didn't take much of an excuse, right? But just any old excuse will do. And so the Samaritans slowed them down and they just got focused on other things. And that's the, the tenor of the, te- of the text. Look at verses 6 through 8. It, it makes sense what he does in verses 6 through 8. He basically says, look, cast your eyes upon your lack. When you go out to the field to glean and there's, there's nothing there, or you drink, there's nothing there in your pockets, it's almost like there's holes in them. That, you know, what do you think that's about? Am I going to let my people live as though they're not my people? Or are they going to look as though they're not my people? Think about your ways. I'm not going to put my name on you and then you act as though that's not the case. Verse 9, the Lord kind of has been cresting this wave. If, you, if you're you know, connecting with it as, as I'm reading, he's um, cresting this wave of interrogation that kind of crashes with the question, why? Like, why are you left in lack, verse 9, his answer, this is the declaration of the Lord, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house, misplacing priority. So this little remnant, the crop is failing. Um, Why are you being thwarted at every point? It's because you don't prioritize me. My house lies in ruins while each of you is busy with your own house. So this first point, the Lord will confront you in misplaced priorities. He spends nine verses to confront them and wants to make it very clear. You need to think about your ways. What are you prioritizing? Are they sinful priorities or are they for my glory? And he gives in verse 8, go up to the hills, bring down lumber and build the house and I'll be pleased with it and I'll be glorified. He doesn't leave them without a word. They know what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to respond. But he so lovingly, and if you're a Christian and here today, he will confront you in your sin. I heard a, a story once of um, John Wesley, not, not Charles as, as we already heard, but that he talked to this other preacher and he mentioned, if I could have one man that would bring me and tell me the truth about where I'm wrong, then he's my best friend. That's the, that's the relationship I treasure. And so that's where God is. He treasures his people and so he confronts them. Observation two, the Lord will withhold earthly blessing from his disobedient children. The Lord will withhold earthly blessing from his disobedient children. This is verses 10 and 11. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on man and animal and on all that your hands produce. So he is, I mean, at the the core of this, God is withholding. 
if you notice, he's the one who brings this drought. He's the one who's keeping food out of their mouth. He's the one, he's the reason why the babies are crying for food. And this is, a, this is real life, and he does that intentionally. So I take this to be, there's something worse that can happen to you and me than starvation. There's worse things that can happen to you and me than to lose your career, to even lose your family, even than to lose, you know, social standing. There's, there's worse things. And what I think he's getting at here is that the worst things are, are a wasted life or, or worse, a damned life. And so at this point in time, these people, these remnant people, this is the the hardcore, like the Marines, they came back. Um, They're starting to look almost like, I can't really tell anymore. And so God confronts them and he withholds from them um, in order to show them that you're uh, wasting your life, you're misplacing your priorities, and at worst, some of them are unbelievers. They're, They're not followers of Yahweh at this point. And this is a a life that's cut off from, from vibrant relationship from Yahweh, from the Lord, and that's the worst things. Do you remember uh, the parable, Nathan preached on this uh, maybe a year ago, um, of the hidden treasure in the field, Jesus, uh, when he talks about it. It's a, it's a really short parable, but it's, it goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. This man who finds the treasure is the exact opposite of the people that Haggai is prophesying, prophesying to. They, they fundamentally are, are denying the truth of the universe that God is greatest. He is that treasure. And he's worth giving everything up in order to obtain him. All sins, all career objectives, everything that you've got is worth all of it. Just I, I happily throw it away in order to gain Jesus. And so these people don't look like that. Their priorities are off, um, and they reflect anything but that the Lord is that treasure. To get his children to understand this truth, the Lord is not above bringing devastation on them in order to jolt them and to wake them up, to, to, to unloose them from the death clutches um, of these sinful, misplaced priorities. He, he's happy, you could say, to harm in, in, in order to heal. He's happy to do it because he knows there's, there's bigger issues at play, and, and namely, they're eternal ones. So think carefully about your ways, is his point here, and he's happy uh, to withhold blessings from you in order to wake you up. Third observation, the Lord assures obedient children, verses 12 through 15. The Lord assures obedient children. He addresses this, um, the two leaders again, and then this remnant, and he says, they, the people obeyed the Lord. He gives them this word. It's kind of an unusual prophecy in that sense. A lot of times, Jeremiah, for instance, he prophesies and sees no fruit whatsoever. And so the people's hearts are um, softened by the Lord, and they turn at the word of, of this prophet, and they fear the Lord, the end of verse 12. Haggai, he brings another message. What is it? These are the sweetest words 
in the chapter, the ones that, that I've clung to all the way through, because it's a hard word. This is a hard-hitting word. But he says, I am with you. They, they turn to the Lord, and he says, I'm, I'm with you. So I think what's happening in these verses, 12 through 15, you could say it like this. Just because salvation isn't found in your works doesn't mean there isn't a blessing in your works. So he's assuring obedient children, and what we do is we get so locked on sometimes to, you know, salvation isn't by works, and that's true, that's absolutely true. Um, But he does save you to train your priorities on his priorities. Because that's where you'll find your best good. That's where you'll find the greatest blessing. And so he's um, blessing these people through putting them to work on, on his priorities. Look at verse 12, and, and we'll notice this, um, this sequence of, of repentance. Verse 12, uh, they are confronted with the word, this, this um, uh, message from the prophet, and then they obey. Verse 13, he delivers a new message, which is, I'm with you. They, they turn from their sin, and God says, I'm with you. And then right after that, they change their priorities, and, and the Lord rouses them to work, or he empowers them to work, and they get to work on this temple, on the house of God. And so if you're tracking, this is what the Christian life is, these couple verses. This morning, you're hearing a word, and you, the Holy Spirit's doing things in your own heart and your mind about your misplaced sinful priorities. So you're confronted with that word. And then you're deciding, even now, am I going to turn from this sin and walk towards the Lord? And if you do, then the Lord shows up and says, I'm with you. I, I'm empowering you. And then he's going to put you to work on his glory again, on, on his house. And we'll talk about what his house is as a New Testament believer. But that's the sequence. And if you're an unbeliever here today, this is how it works. This is the Christian life. You've come in here as an unbeliever with misplaced and sinful priorities. And the Lord loves you enough to confront you in those. Maybe even thwart you like the second observation that he's, he's withholding blessing from you so that you don't see those blessings as God, as idols. And he wants you to repent. He wants you to turn from your sin and turn towards him. And what will happen is um, you'll fear the Lord, you'll worship him, you'll obey him, and he gives you the blessing of relationship. He gives you forgiveness. He gives you far more than you could, honestly, than I could have ever imagined on the front side of, of becoming a Christian. So verse 14, we cap the chapter off by seeing uh, the people, they are readying their hands for the work and as you may notice, even the Lord is powering this, um, this work here, as you see at the beginning. He rouses the spirit of, of the leaders and then the people. And so even, even the work itself, he's the one who's, who's bringing this about. So Haggai 1, it's a, it's a tough word, as I've already mentioned. But the Lord assures his people um, that they are his children whenever they're being obedient. What's not known is if you're not being obedient is whether you're a child or not. To be a Christian means to take separate ways with your sin. It doesn't mean you're sinless. It just means when I'm confronted with my sin, I turn towards Jesus and away from my sin. And so he's assuring his children by saying, I'm with you whenever they turn away from their sin. He he can't just 
turn a blind eye to sin. He, he loves you too much for that. Here's a couple takeaways. I've got four of them. Number one, out of the abundance of the heart, the wallet spins. Out of the abundance of the heart, the wallet spins. So you could put it another way. The receipts in your wallet show your priorities. This isn't difficult to understand. It's just, it's just hard. Um, if we were to print off your bank statement, and I think you should, if you were to print off your bank statement, it would show where your priorities are. And it's going to be mixed, right? I mean, I, as I've been working through this, that's been my experience with it. Would your bank statement say you prioritize hobbies? Free time. Retirement. I mean, I, I assume I'll retire at some point, right? But I don't want my life flavor to be about my retirement. That's, that's not what God seems to bring to, to Haggai's you know, people here. Second one is this. Your calendar betrays your true priorities. Your calendar betrays your true priorities. So your calendar argues an incontestable case as to your priorities. What you spend your time on is your time is a form of worship. And so judgment day will, will blow the top off of what you really worshiped. And so what you need to do is consider your ways. Consider your idols. And what, what is it that you should turn from? And reprioritize. And, and the, the trick here, if you will, is like you gotta, you've got to be in the Bible to understand how he values family and how much time you spend with family. But then also, like, so, so in my instance, like, i got to work too, right? I mean, doesn't mean that work is necessarily an idol, but it could be. So you have to know the Bible to discern those things and be wise about it. You know, you should be giving money and time to the church, but you shouldn't starve yourself. So we work through these things and we go, how, how do I build up the house of God? Think carefully about your time. Third one is this. The work, to work on the house of the Lord for the new covenant believer is to share and show the gospel. To work on the house of the Lord for the new covenant believer. That's us. So Haggai's Old Testament. It's to share and show the gospel. That's what it looks like for new believers. So in the Old Testament, the center of God's glory is displayed through the temple. And so he went to drastic measures to deport the people and then allow a pagan army and king to destroy the temple. This was serious, serious business. But he shows this beautiful reconciliation um, move by saying, I'm bringing you back to the land and I'm going to resurrect a, a new temple, a second temple. And he puts these people, this 50,000 folks, to work to do it. But in the New Testament, what we see, Jesus shows up on the, on the scene and he starts saying things like, it's not a physical temple with physical stones anymore. It's about a living temple, living stones. And that's me and that's you. And these living stones, me and you, are not only like, so the, the first temple is looking towards those living stones moment, and those living stones moment where we're in right now, we're looking forward to the city temple someday, the new heavens and the new earth. We're looking forward as well. 
We're worshiping. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, You are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. As you read through the Old Testament, you see this idea of like sacred space. And so what sacred space is not so much this building, but you. And the protection of um, the membership of this body. You want to know why we do membership interviews and we take that carefully uh, as pastors? It's because either you're the temple of God or you're not. And that's a sacred space or it's not. Look at verse 14. He says, work on the house of the Lord. Well, what, what is that about? It's about point one and two of, of the takeaways. It's about spending your time, your money, and your energy for evangelism and discipleship. That's what it's about. It's, it's, God is building a new temple, and there's living stones that are not yet living. And we, so we evangelize. We share the gospel with people. That's how we build the house of God. But also prioritize with your time and and your money, and and your energy, discipling one another, growing in Christ, meeting over coffee, reading the Bible, confronting one another with the Word whenever someone's off. So what is is he doing? Um, He's often deploying. How does verse 14 work with um, getting us to work? He pulls you and me out of the gutter often by going and helping someone else get out of the gutter. That's how he deploys us to to build the house. He rouses us to work, to go and care for one another, and often in that, that's how he's caring for us. Fourth takeaway, obedience breeds assurance. Obedience breeds assurance. So the Israelites at this point in time, there was no assurance until about verse 12. God has things to say, but there's things between them, and they can't have assurance when their priorities are so sinful and, and misplaced. And so there's, until they turn from their sin, then the relationship can convene. It can keep moving forward. But their sinful, misplaced priorities just up to that point just compound and, and build anxiety, and, and, and rightfully so. But then, you know, in in verse 13, and this is, again, as I I said earlier, my favorite part in here, he says, I'm with you. They they turn from their sin, and he says, I'm with you. And and the Lord is fatherly testifying their assurance, and he's saying, look, I'm I'm with you. I um, personally, I think that this is probably the the thing that I want to hear the most from the Lord on any given day. God, are are you with me? Am I, am I on the right track? You know? And so how we know that is when you're following Jesus. It doesn't mean that you, you have no assurance if you sinned three minutes ago. But it does mean that when you're following Jesus, that he's just he's pouring on assurance. And he's saying, I'm with you. I'm, I'm assuring you. I'm walking with you. I am your father. And so this this fatherly uh, love and assurance um, can be seen even in our own earthly fathers, right? If you had uh, a a weak father who wasn't connected to you, then you you sensed it in that way. You wanted that assurance from your father, but it never came. If you did have a good father, but he was incomplete, you still sought out that assurance from him. And this, 
unspeakable joy that comes with him saying, I'm with you. You remember in 1 John 3, 1, he says, John says, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And so we are. He speaks this word to, uh, after, after a harsh word, right? They've been deported and then he comes back and he says, I've got some things to say and it's not a, you need to reprioritize. And then he says, I'm with you. So you trade in your sins this morning, Christian or unbeliever. Trade in your sins and your misplaced priorities and exchange them for the smile of your heavenly father. It's worth it. There's a, um, Andrew Peterson wrote a couple fiction books and, and in there, um, there's a, one of them, there's a character named Poto Helmer. Poto Helmer. Uh, and in the book, he's, he's an older man, but he's redeemed. Right, he's changed his ways, and he spent most of his life, much like me and you, um, trying to hide from everyone that he cared and feared what his former life was like, what he really was. Through some different occurrences, everything that, uh, that he wanted to hide so clearly actually comes out to the light, and, and worst of all, it's before all the people that he loves the most and he cares, and so as you and I would be, we're our most fearful um, you know, worst nightmares there is happening and coming true that everyone I'm exposed, I'm really, I really am like this, happens to, to Poto. And um, instead of his friends responding, you know, the way that he thought, which is like to just reject him and, and send him away, he actually finds the opposite. He finds um, camaraderie and kindness. And Peterson writes, Poto Helmer's, Poto Helmer, moved through the days in peace and wonder. For his whole story had been told for the first time, and he found that he was still loved. He found that he was still loved. When he really came forward, what he was really like comes out to the light. Everyone knows, and he finds he's still loved. He had turned a long time ago from his sin, but he's still worried about the shadow uh, ever coming out. And in Haggai 1, what you see is that God should have shown up speaking in thunder. Right? I brought you back to the land, and you've just ignored me. And he does. He comes with a harsh word, but he doesn't end there, does he? What does he say? I'm with you, declares the Lord. In case you were wondering, I'm declaring it. I'm with you. I'm still here. And they had sinned, and they had misplaced their priorities, but they found out that they were still loved. And this is what often happens to the church through this new temple that we are, um, is that we find out when we're really thrown out into the light, what we're really like, is that God brings about love towards us um, and shows that, hey, I'm, I'm with you. And, and guess what? Everybody else is just like you. All, all things that we want to keep back. I started this sermon um, by drawing our attention to what, it, what it's like to be in, in you know, this relationship where we're not really on speaking terms, and this is kind of, you would call this a fight right? What I didn't develop is that um, what that means, if you would even be in a fight like that with a friend or, or a family member, a spouse, maybe a church member, it actually speaks to the value of a relationship too. And so God shows up in Haggai and he forever values these people. He breaks the silence. He shows that they're worth 
um, fighting for and fighting with. So what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's saying that you're worth fighting for. I'll take on sin. I'll take on death. I'll take on Satan because you're worth fighting for. I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. You're worth fighting for. You're worth fighting with. And, and yes, there are some things, your misplaced priorities, but I'm not leaving. Let's pray. Father, you're good. You're so good to confront us in our sin. You're so good to withhold earthly blessing from us in order that we might obtain, in the end, uh, eternal blessing. I pray that you would confront us as a church in our misplaced priorities. I pray that you would um, build us up as a temple, a living temple. Put us to work and bless us through the work. That we um, go out, as, as Nathan just finished this series on sharing and showing the gospel, that we would go out and we'd share the gospel with the lost. That you might build your temple. I pray that you would make our money, our time, our energy make an argument as to that our priorities are on you. Lord, that's going to take wisdom. All of us come from different economic scenarios currently, and we have different time constraints. So I pray that you would send your spirit to convict us, to help us, to encourage us, to show us uh, that yes, if we are Christians, you are with us. And yes, you want to not leave us in our sins and in, in our misplaced and sinful priorities. Do the work that only you can do. Send the person of the Spirit to help us, empower us to, to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen.